Hello, everyone. This is Richard Robertson from the Dean's Office. With me today is Matt Dahl. And Matt is the director of, the, of Gordon and Orvieto, or as we call it, the Orvieto Program. Uh, we've been sending students to that program for, for many, many years. And uh, I'm excited to be talking to a visual artist for the first time uh, in this podcast series. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Matt is here today because we are opening today a, a very large exhibition of his paintings. And uh, the, the title of his exhibition, let's see if I can get it right again, Night Desert Garden. Is that right? Perfect. And it is uh, um, a series of landscapes and other figures uh, some, sometimes human figures in these landscapes. Um, huge collection of paintings, some of them very large, some of them very small. Um, and it's filling our gallery and the Kleinenhaga building and parts of the High Center. It's quite, quite a large collection of paintings and very exciting to see. Uh, it, he's exploring, he says, the two cities where he spent a great deal of time, uh, Jerusalem, and Rome. Uh, he, he studied abroad as a junior at uh, Rhode Island School of Design. He studied abroad for a year in Rome. And then immediately after finishing at, at uh, RISD, he went on, went to Jerusalem and spent a year there uh, before doing his MFA. And, uh, and then after finishing his MFA, went back to Jerusalem. Uh, and also that first time that he was in Jerusalem, uh, in, met his wife and was married during that first year. So that's, that's, that's a pretty significant thing. So these are, these are important series. And of course, then since 2008, I believe it is, mm -hmm. you've been in Italy, in Orvieto, which isn't Rome. Right. It's not too far away, is it? Not too far. Not about too an hour. You're about an hour away. Outside. And, uh, uh, but it's certainly the Italian culture and certainly the influence of that, that whole area. And of course, the whole Mediterranean is dealing with the um, the ongoing strife that is happening in uh, in Palestine and Jordan and those that that area mm -hmm. uh, around Jerusalem. So very much living in the middle of that. So the question that I want to start with again is just it's the contrast that I, as a musician, feel. Mus music is completely abstract, and the only way we can put what, what appears to be concrete meaning in is to put a text in. But music itself, uh, uh, just as a piece of piano music, I'm a pianist, you know, a piece of piano music is, is, has to be abstract, will always be abstract. And, um, but then when I, so when I look at an exhibition like yours, I see, you know, you have given it a concrete meaning in your title, in referencing uh, Jerusalem and Rome, and you've given it concrete meaning in painting um, images of vegetation, uh, images of um, the rocks and boulders and elements of the landscape. But at the same time, when I look at your paintings, I see the abstraction and I hmm. see color and form and rhythm and uh, and movement. And, and, uh, and well, I. I'll talk about that a little bit more. I, I'm not a trained artist, so I, I know I don't look at it the way you do. Uh, but we can talk about that a little bit uh, more later. But right now, I just want to ask you how you bring these two aspects together as you're working mm. as a painter. Sure. Of looking at this abstracted quality of just the, the energy and beauty of the paint itself mm. and, and the concrete meanings that you're bringing together to express within that. Mm. Um, if you could comment on that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I would like to say at the beginning how wonderful it is to be here and how special it is to be a part of uh, Messiah's campus during this week where I've just experienced endless <laughs> generosity and, and kindness, but also hospitality. And that hospitality is something that I not only feel here, but have felt for the entire length of our time in Italy with faculty, um, faculty who came over to teach but became not just friends, and companions, but real allies for us as a family and for even for my understanding of my role as a director on a program like that. Um, and then you introduce the element of your students. The Messiah students have been outstanding from start to finish. They have they've brought such uh, care and vision and, and they've brought such a rich and embodied educational vision 
for, um, for encountering the world, which is something that we take so seriously. It's, it's why we do study abroad, mm-hmm. is to genuinely encounter the world and, and be challenged by that. And, and the Messiah students come both serious in the classroom and, and committed in their community, uh, in their community commitments within our, within our uh, life in the convent and in, in, in Orvieto. And um, we have, it's hard to, it's hard to communicate just how important the friendship has been with our colleagues and, 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 and students that have come from Messiah because they join up with our students from across the country who've all made this choice to leave mm-hmm. home and to live in this very intentional community life, which yes, there, is, there are a lot of intentional community life uh, programs that deal with displacement and, and focus upon yeah. various subjects. But here we are dealing with arts and the humanities, but living abroad. And um, the need. I think your, your situation, you are very much a community, the way, the way this, your program works yes. in a perhaps unique way. Mm. Uh, because not only are you living together, but you're also making art together all right. day long. I mean, we're, Right. Most of the day, anyway, and and uh, uh, you know, so you're just right there, and yet you're not a bubble. You're not an American bubble, right? right? I mean, you're very much integrated with the Italian culture and and place and sense of place where you are. Is isn't that all accurate about your? That's program? very accurate, and it's a priority. It's a priority yeah. that yes, we withdraw within to a community which happens to be a, a renovated 13th century convent, right. which is true, uh-huh. but that is merely a means for us to gather together so that when we do leave the convent and leaving the convent is significant both as a gesture and as a movement and so leaving means going out into the world every time and Mm -hmm. taking what strength that they've gained inside together in communication in dialogue with their teachers with their subjects with one another Um, it is meant to orient them to the exterior Mm -hmm. with the strength of the interior that we're right that we're hoping to cultivate so that is something that we have tried to prioritize, and we try to renew that commitment every semester so that our living there in Italy and living in Orvieto is not something that becomes formulaic and, and static, mm-hmm. but remains active and open to what changes are occurring across the, across the social, political spectrum, even if it's a, it's a small town mm-hmm. in central Umbria. Mm-hmm. Um, so to your Wonderful question about, <laughs> right? Uh, I think one of the ways I can like to answer it or like to even go back to uh, some of the origins of that answer for me would be in my edu- rooted in my education. Mm-hmm. And my education, I was, uh, I was placed, like a lot of us in our first year of, of undergraduate, in situations that were so radically unfamiliar mm-hmm. as we entered into these studios and were asked to take seriously two-dimensional design, three-dimensional design, drawing, and then, and then this enormous um, perspective on art history mm-hmm. that, for me, coming from southwestern Ohio, even the move to the East Coast felt like a, a fairly radical cultural yeah. shift. Yeah. And then I assumed that I was going to go towards commercial art. I wanted to be, uh-huh. I, wanted to, I really wanted to learn how to draw as accurately as possible so that I could utilize that to hopefully to apply uh, to be an animator at Disney. This was my this is my no secret kidding. early ambition. <laughs> you know, I love it. shamelessly admit <laughs> that Robin Hood was my favorite movie. You know, <laughs> and it, you know, I don't want to romanticize the hand drawn quality of things, but there was that there is that element of yes, the of the, yeah. the haptic quality of 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 seeing the even the glitches in a hand drawn. Hand animated. Um, so can I interrupt you just to say, yeah. you, you use the word haptic, and you use it in writing about this show, mm. and I had to look up what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guilty. <laughs> but it's to touch things, right? Am I, mm. Yeah, it's to touch things. And of course, I'm a pianist, and I've played a lot of toccatas, which means the same mm-hmm. thing, as you well know, because yep. you speak Italian. Right. <laughs> Toccare right. is to That's touch. Right. <laughs> and it is. It's a, it's a fantastic word, because it... it it references a quality of touch. Mm-hmm. So when something, and that can be, that can be a little bit abstract and evasive because you can say something has a quality of touch, and so you say it has, it has haptic qualities or mm-hmm. the hapticity. You know, so mm-hmm. so I often get the question, you know, when I use it, so so from students, um, but that is something that has been. Uh, 
I think it's a word and it's a concept that has been essential to even my, as I began to understand what art could mean. Mm-hmm. Because when I came to, honestly, when I came to art school, I, it was all wide open for me. And it just, I, I feel like all of the teachers that I had were m- marvelously pulling the rug out from under me. Every time I thought <laughs> that I had something to stand on, they, they yeah. said, orient your vision in this way. Be open to new ideas uh, along these lines. Mm-hmm. As soon as you close down, your work's going to stop. But remain open, remain open. So there were all these different various pedagogies that, that, that uh, presented me with possibilities. So with everything being new, I mean, you can take a lot of, you can take it very different positions on that. And I just happened to be ready for that. Mm-hmm. And so art history really genuinely was something that as I was looking at these things made across millennia, thinking these things were made with such different intentions, with such great care, with such specificity, um, it, the, again, the world, I just, in a way, I kind of kept, at that point, I kept going further east. I'll just say that as a way mm-hmm. in. Because then, to get to your question specifically, I know there are a lot of, so many arguments that can be, can be discussed about abstraction, representation, and even, yes. even different continents have different perspectives on these rooted yes. in their kind of perceptions culturally. And I know that, I mean, America has such, an, uh, such a tremendous history of the past mm-hmm. 100 plus years that, that, um, that, really, that, that, that really is remarkable and rivals a lot of what was going on in Paris and a lot of what was, you know, was going mm-hmm. on in, in various cultures throughout history. So by the time I arrived to art school, I was on the, on the two ends of the spectrum where I would say I was given kind of, let's say, almost like photorealistic high renaissance drawing techniques mm-hmm. and on the other side complete and total freedom of abstraction right. Right. and both of those were presented not as arguments but merely as possibilities right. to represent right. to communicate and in some cases that communication is sometimes um, mm-hmm. rooted in emotion it's rooted sure. in observation it's sure. rooted in in language Mm -hmm. and being able to utilize those this is what i felt like i left my undergraduate education with that can i just say one thing which is that of course i was in school in the 70s and you were in school in the 90s and um, so that means that even though in the 70s we were already in the postmodern era we didn't know it yet right so i was educated purely as a modernist Mm where that radical edge, if you were really an artist, that's, that's where you were. Do you know right. what I mean? So oh, yeah. in music, yeah. well, yeah, Leonard Bernstein writes music, and he's very popular, and we love his music, but if you're really serious, you're going to write autonomous music. Hmm. Aaron Copeland came to my campus, and he was criticized for selling out hmm. uh, by, by these young students who couldn't possibly accomplish what he's accomplished, you know, but that, that's, that's still, that right. was the mindset. That was that high modern right. modernism mindset. Right. So when you got to school 20 years later, we weren't in that mindset anymore. Exactly. But that realism and that abstraction and all points in between were possibilities. Mm-hmm. And they're, therein is it's a yes. huge difference, that huge shift that happened in those years. Okay, keep going. Sorry. No, that's true. Was, yeah. And I think even when I was in graduate school, you know, the, the, their... You know, the kind of the heroes of, of, you know, a lot of our friends were people like Philip Gustin, who in the late 70s, you know, was made this radical decision to mm-hmm. say, you know what, we are riddled with stories and narratives and we're not going to escape that for too long. And right. and and that was a I mean, he paid for it. <laughs> I mean, he paid for it and yes. and took the hits because he went back to a to a type of figuration that was for most people utterly dismissive and sure. and had ended right sure. no need to represent the figure and yet and this is i mean it's, it is critical because his work has a self-reflective uh, poetic highly personal um and um po- poetic self-criticism that i found to be so um both meaningful but also challenging because he put himself as the 
as the fi- as the figure in the painting. And these were not these were not happy subjects. He mm-hmm. was this was during a time not unlike our time right now, where there's a lot of charged language. I mean, yes, everywhere there are there are a lot of charged narratives everywhere, and trying to decide how to even agree upon certain upon certain interpretations of things. We, we like to think that, it, yes, it's a highly partisan moment right now, but also America has lived through periods like that that, were, that would seem extreme to some, some yes. of the you know, yes. younger generations. I think for when, when in seeing Gustin's work, it was a vision of somebody who knew what the stakes were and was willing to make the work that he was convinced needed to be made. So that's, there's a romantic notion in that, mm-hmm. but that was also, he had turned his back on another romantic notion of the abstract expressionists, and, and even he was referred to often as an abstract impressionist because his paintings were just so so lush yeah. and so easy to like, yeah. right? So um, I say that because all throughout my education, I was encouraged to consider what a painting needed to be, you know, that language of, listening into the subject. Mm-hmm. And if you are going to enter into subjects or works of art that engage in, in either concept or, or meaning, you know, these things, you know, that have, that have, have at times been uh, unwelcome mm-hmm. in works of art and at other times central to their identification and their understanding. And, and so the work really began to be oriented in, in, in that, I, I want to say freedom, because I, did, I didn't feel pressure I mean, of course, maybe in grad school. <laughs> right, right. You know, it's pressure to sound, to sound right, to say the right thing, to yes. make the right thing. And yes. yet, all of my teachers, even in grad school, and my colleagues and peers all these years, I mean, I owe them so much. I'm so thankful for the, the, the critical friendship and dialogue that I've had with them. It's something that I always try to encourage in students to develop yes. critical yes. conversations where yeah, people never can speak that. into your yeah. lives. Yeah. And I mean, speak into your lives, but speak into your work. Yes. And even years later, walk into your studio and say, you need to change that. <laughs> like, or, or you're stuck. You're stuck in a groove and you need to, you need to yeah. free yourself of that. Yeah. That is so uh, important. And I, if I could, you know, it's one of these things where I owe so, so much to their encouragement, their vision, also lending their, their, mm-hmm. their language and their, all of their backgrounds and, you know, to, mm-hmm. to look at even taking the work seriously. It's an, I mean, it's, it's important to say, it's an enormous honor and privilege that anybody will take time to look at yes, your work, yes. to listen to your music. Uh, because, you know, this, we don't, we are generally spending our times fueled by endless imagery and endless sounds that, that we don't usually have too much a say in their That's design. Right. Right. And, um, and so mm-hmm. to have a conversation and to be, and to be looking at things together in a shared space is, it's a real gift. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, when I looked at your, at your work, um, so this is, again, I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant. Uh, <laughs> no, don't say that. It's not true. <laughs> but oh, I'm not a trained artist anyway. So here's what I thought when I looked at it. I was, my, my first impression was just of how muted everything looked. Mm. The colors to me are, are, at first, I thought they're dark, and then I thought, no, they're not always dark, but they are always muted. Hmm. Is that? That's I don't fair. Know if that ex- yeah, if sometimes, that, yeah. If that uh, captures. And the other thing I thought it was Mark Rothko. Hmm. So <laughs> just to go completely. Uh, <laughs> Bravo! Right. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, you're in a totally different world from him. Mm-hmm. But something in the way you were painting, I looked at that, and I, I, I enjoyed looking at those muted colors the way I enjoy looking at his mm. blocks of color mm. within what you're doing. And, uh, and so that's, why, that's what led to my first question, yeah. because you're bringing in meanings about these two cities and about the conflict that's there and about trying. I know you... I mean, well, we'll get to that later. Uh, there's another thing I want to say, but so... The, how do you react to, to that? I mean, you're, this is just... No, this is... I mean, I I feel comfortable saying that I, in my work, mm-hmm. I relate constantly to music. Ah, interesting. And constantly to poetry. Uh-huh. Because I feel that I've always felt, instinctively, but also more formally, uh-huh. that we're, poets are dealing with relationships. Musicians are dealing with relationships. At the formal level, 
sometimes, I mean, artists love, I know musicians love this, they love to put things next to one another. Yes. They love to make alignments. Yes. They love to create yes. dissonance and resonance. Yes. And I often, when I'm trying to encourage my students to, um, you could say, let down some of their bias mm-hmm. um, towards abstraction or towards representation or representational imagery, mm-hmm. I always use, particularly with abstraction, I always use to try a, a very simple analogy by referencing music. You know, mm-hmm. at a certain point, you know, when you hear two notes together mm-hmm. and you love them, mm-hmm. you don't you don't question that. You just, <laughs> just said that's. I mean, some people will. They'll. I mean, uh-huh. there are people who will do that. Um, those analytics, but when you hear them together and they work, you say that just sounds wonderful. Why is that? Why does that have to be so contentious? If you put two a thick mark next to a thin or a fast mark. What a gloopy red next to a, a sharp green. Why do those? Why do we? Uh, why do we say? But hold on, that's mm-hmm. abstract. You know, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't trust that. You know, you hear that a lot, and I, we mm-hmm. we we have to counter that sometimes in our in the classroom, just in order for for for, to, for them to feel um, a more. I think more engaged at the sat- levels of saturation, levels of density, levels of weights. And we talk about this all the time. So weight shifts, tonal shifts, even if it's, you know, a big color to a, to a, mm-hmm. or a, a saturated color to a muted color. Yes. Um, I do as a painter, I think in those terms as I'm processing through, or as I'm trying to, con- you know, to wrestle with um, concepts in the, Yes, in the meaning of the paintings. Yes. But some of them are very yes. specific, and I want the paintings to be dry. I, mm-hmm. want, them to be, I want them to be shiny. I want, I want mm-hmm. there to be this surface quality that is, uh, you know, as, has qualities of invitation and even resistance. And that's both visual, but that's also surface. That's also object and texture mm-hmm. and, and, have, and physical. At the beginning, you talked about relationships, and you mm-hmm. were talking specifically about relationships formal relationships mm-hmm. or structural relationships within your painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you said you said something about dissonance and res- uh, dissonance. I think you use the word dissonance and resonance. I would use the word dissonance and resolution. Mm. And I think you could even say within music, um, all music is about dissonance and resolution, or at least about going away from and coming back to mm. something. And every piece defines what that is in a different way. Mm. Every musical language defines that in a different way. But you still have... And the, like even Gregorian chant, which is one yeah. line, still comes back to a finalis. Hmm. It's in a mode, and you know you 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 come back to that. So there's a going away and a coming back, hmm. if you That's will. That's beautiful. Yeah, resolution. And, yeah, and uh, and even an autonal piece <laughs> that doesn't have a tonal center, nevertheless, can have a sense of being more complex and less complex. Or there's hmm. a sense of going away and coming back, and uh, and I think that lies at the at the root of what you're, that, that delight that musicians have in putting things together and seeing what happens. Yeah. I know I've taught students, I, I have one student in particular, and she just loved to set up processes and see what happened, you know, and <laughs> yeah. sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't. Yeah. But, you know, it was fun to see that mm. and uh, um, see, see how it would work out. And I, uh, uh, so, of course, the same thing obviously can happen within the painting. But you're bringing other ideas. So... In the booklet that we have, we have this wonderful booklet with with articles. That, I mean, Brent and Brent Good, who's the chair of our department now, and Ted Prescott, a former chair, and are uh, taught sculpture here for many years, and all, both of whom have taught at Orvieto many times, have have articles. Bruce Herman from Gordon has an article, and uh, Jill, I forget her last name, Caratini, yes, had an article right at the front. So I was struck by the fact that she brought in Acadia or Oxidi, it's sometimes called, uh, which is um, you know one of the uh, one of the sins, I guess, uh, and it's sometimes translated despondency. Mm. It's somewhere between, um, I, I think of it as somewhere between apathy and depression. Mm. It's not really depression, it's not really giving up, it's kind of a mixture of both in the middle somewhere. And, um, and then I found that both Brent and Ted in their articles uh, talked about the ethical aspects of your painting, that you were dealing with ethical issues in, in dealing with this, and of course, Oxidy or Acadia is is sort of that. Do I do I act in an ethical manner? Does it matter if I act in a method? You know what I mean? Do, yeah. Does it do, will it actually make a difference? Mm. And so, I'm I'm sorry, but I'm just fascinated by this 
technical side of painting that also brings those kinds of things in. So that here are three different people writing articles. So I don't know if this comes out of talking with you or are they actually just seeing something in the work yeah, that, that brings you to that place. Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And I can say that one of the things that I haven't, I discovered that I had in common with Jill mm-hmm. uh, Caratini was we were both in Jerusalem the first time at the same time. Mm-hmm. We didn't know each other. And that was 19... That was the winter of 1996 on mm-hmm. the, during the, what would be the J term between semesters when I was in Rome. Uh-huh. I went to paint for the oh, first time okay. for six weeks. Uh-huh. And that was, for me in my work and life, a major turning point. I even refer to it as a pivot um, in my artist talk. Mm-hmm. Because that was the first time where until... And it's, it's very relevant to your question because mm-hmm. until that point... I was pursuing the idea of, of representing landscape. And I was also just making tons of paintings, just trying to learn how to paint, but also going out and, as we all do, choosing what to include and what not to include in the frame. And so notions of the pictorial mm-hmm. and uh, the, 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 the scene that's in front of me. I mean, I was in Jerusalem. I wasn't in Dayton, Ohio. So those are very, there's a very different location, very different landscape. Um, and, and as I was there, it was for the first time, really, a, I encountered and was, you know, I was, I was exposed to, I was encountered um, by active, hostile kind of religious violence. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, with all of the notions of what that place rep- is and represents to so many people, so many different people for thousands of years, all of a sudden it was very much in my in, in, in the present reality right. um, expressing um, very powerful violent conditions mm-hmm. um, and and so in, in a particular way that was uh, the as I say the turning point when I, I did feel like I could no longer look out at the landscape the same mm-hmm. I had to take res- I had to take greater responsibility for what what my vision was encountering without becoming political right in i mean in, in, in an overt way without becoming argumentative and yet still wanting to to deal with questions of representation and so i kept going back you could say i kept going back to that territory and each time i i, I felt as though in my own very privileged um you know i have an american passport a very privileged position yeah. to be yeah. able to go through some of these places right, right. without any of the same restraints that other people have yes. and that should never be taken for granted yes. and yet again yes. needing to take responsibility for that and so after I again I went back to Jerusalem went back to Rome went back to Jerusalem met Sharona we got married and married into um, um, her family that has been there since 1966 even going back uh, further even to the British mandate period having mm-hmm. some presence living there and trying to live in a place where there is endless conflict, endless political strife. We know that. Mm-hmm. And yet, how in the world do you try to navigate the space between such conflicted narratives, all of which need to be heard, all of which need to be attempted to be understood and mm-hmm. shared and, 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 and attended to and also cared for? So I saw in their family living there this vision, this effort and vision to as almost as impossible as it seems is to live within that place mm-hmm. and honor everybody that was around them. And it was a, it was a vision of hospitality. It was a vision of community that I had never seen before in mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. The immediacy of it, the, the, well, especially the, in a place where there's so much hostility, right? Mm-hmm. And to minister and to be engaged in service in a place like that mm-hmm. was such a vision. And I so respect um, my my family there um, for what they've done and what they continue to try to do mm-hmm. under the under the circumstances. So how and did so that change your painting? It changed my paintings because I couldn't I couldn't ignore certain elements of grief and suffering mm-hmm. and hurt, as well as the wounds that you see mm-hmm. evident scars that are apparent mm-hmm. in in nature. In, in relationships and it was just drawing me I didn't realize this because then eventually we started working in the Orvieto program it was drawing me closer to 
deeper themes of vulnerability and um and and then also um yeah you're trying <laughs> You're trying to get me to stay on task about my paintings, and here I am smiling. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. This is the context. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I do have to. I mean, it is the context with which the work emerged. Right. I mean, right. that's the narrative, and and that's where I didn't. I didn't set out to go. You know, become a painter who was going to take on these themes, and yet over time, these themes emerged as being yeah too essential to ignore. So, I have always. So I have always felt comfortable saying. I mean, more so, I guess, more so now than ever. That I do consider myself a landscape painter, but I know that, that for a lot of people, they were like, hold on, right? I mean, <laughs> um, and they might say, are you sure you want to you know, give yourself that title? But no, I say that because I do, I love the whole history of landscape painting, even in its broadest sense, going back to, yes, even like the kind of scene paintings that were being done um, in, in, in Greece in Rome and every period of our history when the landscape and the figure were always coming closer and receding back. So even the picture plane, the, 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 the the approach of the picture plane and the, and the receding picture plane, I've always loved that throughout history and being able to play with that, that Mm -hmm. sense of place and proximity. Um, and, and so for the longest time, there were no figures in my paintings. Mm, Interesting. Um, I would say, yeah, I was not, I mean, I, of course, I took lots of figurative uh, painting mm-hmm, and drawing mm-hmm, and stuff. That wasn't mm-hmm. the issue. It's just I didn't identify with the body and the representation of the body in that way. And I felt I felt more at home in the open space. And that's why even in some of the paintings in the show, there's still, there's just a lot of open space. There's a lot of, um, there's an expansiveness to them for, yes, there is. for mm-hmm. observation, mm-hmm. for surface. I'm not sure so, if I'm answering the question. No, I know this, <laughs> is, this is great. Um, Did you bring figures into the work then because of the suffering you were seeing? Is that a fair way to talk about it? Or do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Is that, was it a way to, because to, you, you had to say something about that? Yes, but it was, figures really entered the work substantially in Italy as we were living there as a family adapting to life uh, as a family, living abroad, learning mm-hmm. how to adapt to the community, working with students, and and then particularly taking them to Assisi mm-hmm. to encounter, for sometimes, for most of them, for the first time, um, the life of St. Francis yeah. and of St. Clair, yeah. their lives. Through Giotto's paintings, right? Is through that, Giotto's yeah. paintings, yeah. right? And through, through the place itself, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Assisi is a remarkably peaceful place, but which is so ironic because during the time period that Francis and Claire were living there, it was it's anything not, but. Yeah. It was the it was the it was the era of the Crusades, and you were yeah. you were enclosed within monasteries and you were enclosed <laughs> within city walls for protection and mm-hmm. security. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the it wasn't the most peaceful of places, but now everybody goes there, hoping for um, hoping for an encounter. Mm-hmm. In, a, in, a, in such a peaceful setting, and yet, the with each semester, as I was I was tasked really, and 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 I mean honestly, as I was adapting to my role in in this place between the students and the geography of Rome and of the language of the history of art in these places. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a trained art historian, but I love art history and I love engaging with the places. So, I felt to be honest. And authentic with the students, I had to adapt to each place and to each of these narratives in ways that were that were serious, that were that was engaged, but also that had some that would have some contemporary, current dialogue, and not just an art historical script to say this right. is important because we know it's important, but why does it have any meaning for us now? Right. right and therefore, right. to so to to say that. The, as the, the deeper I got into the narrative of Francis, mm-hmm. um, I began looking for sources. And one of the main sources that became a source for my paintings, um, specifically, was the Italian filmmaker Roberto Rossellini. Mm-hmm. And he was, like a number of filmmakers, mm-hmm. in immediate post-war, World War II, right. uh, in Europe and Italy, trying to figure out what in the world are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Yeah. How do we... How do we move from from this place 
And in this incredible, in this incredible gesture, a number of filmmakers um, like uh, Rossellini began to use film as, a, as almost an, a, a way back to offer an antidote to what some would say was the, 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 a capitulation uh, to Nazism, to fascism, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and to be making films even as American GIs were still on the streets of Rome I mean, you can say it's a heroic gesture if you want. I mean, that, mm-hmm. there is something courageous about that mm-hmm. that I mm-hmm. love thinking about. Thinking we're going to we're going to respond, and I I show to each of our stu- to each group of our students on the on the night before we go to Rome for the first mm-hmm. time when they're going to see Augustan Rome, they're going to see medieval Rome, they're going to see High Renaissance and Baroque Rome, and they're going to see contemporary Rome as it is. Right. I show them this mid-century portrait of Rome. I consider it to be a portrait of Rome in in Rome, open city. Great film that, mm-hmm. that he that he that he directed, and just done uh, right after the war. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's not easy to watch. Yeah. It's very difficult. Right. And the first time I showed it to a group of students, this is when I knew here was one of those sources. I showed it to a group of students, um, screened it for them, and not one of them were. I mean, every single one of them was in tears afterwards. Yeah, and it's a it's a foreign film in black and white in Italian, yes. removed from a subject that's so remote for them, but something touched. Something yeah. reached them, and I thought there is power. Yeah. There's a power of art happening in that sure. exchange. Sure. And and I said, remember this because now we're going to Rome in the morning, mm-hmm. and we need to be willing to see not just the Trevi Fountain, right? Yes. That's yes. Fantastic. See the yeah. Trevi Fountain, but you gotta be go willing on. to go yeah. through some of the layers of the history. Sure. The other film, I'm getting back to the figures in my paintings. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the figures in my paintings emerged particularly so because um, Rossellini also decided to make a film called The Flowers of St. Francis. Right. And it was a radical decision to make a film like this. Mm-hmm. Um, demonstrably simplistic, as he would even say. I mean, simplistic in the sense of portraying these friars in the way that kind of comes through in the various narratives of France, that mm-hmm. it comes through as this mm-hmm. simple medieval life. Mm-hmm. Um, and he used, I mean, he used friars for his actors and it allowed there to be that even awkward, what we'd say was a non-professional acting right. to replicate the, the, maybe the authenticity of it. Right. But the film is broken up into short vignettes. And those short vignettes usually begin with the words "quando Francesco," when Francis, dot dot right. dot, and and they are they are Perhaps. exhortations. Mm-hmm. They're many, they're they're almost little. I mean, they are short short stories and narratives from Francis, true or not, but exemplary in their own way. Right. And they invite you to consider these moments where questions of care, questions of hospitality, or questions of general. I mean, of of um, of of poverty are front and center in this black and white f- mm-hmm. film. But it was the one that was the vignette when Francis encountered the leper that pretty much just changed everything sure. for me. Yeah. Rosa, do you want, should I keep going? Yeah, keep oh, going. Yeah. Rosalini decided to... It's just a familiar story. That's yeah. why I'm yeah. <laughs> responding. Uh, brilliantly, Rosalini decided to, decided to film it at, in, in, at night that was also a good decision, just for the, mm-hmm. the um, technically speaking, and the it begins it begins with this incredible moment where Francis is is in tears, trying to to, to I mean, he's probably in prayer, but he's trying to will himself towards what he I think he what he would say is God's will for his life all mm-hmm. the time, mm-hmm. and yet it's at night he's laying there and there's bird song, which is wonderful, but then all of a sudden you hear this this. Um, clanking cup, the sound of a clanking cup, mm-hmm. which is contrasting with the bird song. And that's the leper walking at night, announcing his presence to people on the road, even though the walking at night is probably one of the only times when he would have had free passage. Right. He's not going to be attacked by anybody. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, he's probably um, his most relaxed self, his most free mm-hmm. self. And in that moment, Francis knows this is the what he had said. He's the the sight of lepers was detestable to him. He hated it, etc. Mm-hmm. But this was this moment where he was going to go towards the leper. Mm-hmm. And the language of the life of Francis is fantastic because they talk about his years of conversion, not his salvation moment, his years of conversion. And some people would point, and and I like to think, 
I, I mean, I agree. I'd like to think that this is such an important moment. It was this moment where he, where he walked towards the leper, but not just to greet him, but actually to fully Touch embrace him. him. Yeah. And Rosalini, it's perfect because he tries, and the leper looks at him and kind of says, I've seen this before. Mm-hmm. You're not that serious, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, and then Francis watches him walk away, and then he, then, he, then he actually goes up, stands in front of him, and fully embraces him. Mm-hmm. And, and then you see also the gesture of the leper. But the language that Francis, that in his own words, that we have this, in his own words, Francis mm-hmm. says, you know, from, you know, from this moment where he encountered the, letter, the, the leper, from there I left the world. Mm-hmm. And my encounter with Rossellini, I mean, it gets very personal, um, mm-hmm. but it, it, my encounter with this, the, the, the body of the leper mm-hmm. was unmistakable because simultaneously at this very moment, my own father was um, mm-hmm. fighting a progressive disease mm-hmm. that lasted for about seven years. Mm-hmm. And f- living so far away from him mm-hmm. and my mom and just our family in, in mm-hmm. the States, um, there was just something, there was something profoundly essential that I identify with. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to make a painting from a film still of the leper and almost be one-to-one scale mm-hmm. and make it so that the surface was um, beautiful, mm-hmm. tactile, and repulsive. Mm-hmm. At the same time, yes. to have those qualities. So many people think I always always say if someone says to me after a concert that was really pretty that they didn't get it. Uh, <laughs> I think people mistake beauty for prettiness sometimes, and beauty contains all the pain and suffering of the world. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, and and art has to capture that and deal with it in some way. And um, I'm I'm really sorry. Just coming at that, that's a beautiful, beautiful explanation of, of the things you're talking about. Um, but earlier on, I was I was just thinking about um, the whole question of how art relates with. Um, I'm getting I'm getting tongue tied as well. We we are I, we're supported by people with money. Mm. <laughs> as artists, oh boy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and uh, and trying to understand what our role is in dealing with issues of class and poverty, mm. and and the injustice that goes along with that, which is a worldwide issue, and is an issue between cultures. Sometimes you talk about your privilege as an American. We have that privilege because of our wealth and power, yeah, as a country, and. Um, uh, you know, my, my example is always that my daughter spent a, a year in Africa, in Chad, mm. in Mundu. And she was taught the local language, was in Gambai, uh, by a man who lost his three-year-old son to um, measles. Mm. And uh, I, my, con- my mind thinks about the amount of money you have to pay to get elected to the Senate these days, or the amount of money that we pay for our professional athletes and uh, the fact that we can't afford to get decent health care so that a man in Africa doesn't lose his child, his three-year-old right. son, to meet to a childhood disease. Uh, that's the world we live in, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we have those, those contrasts. And so just dealing with what art has to... How, how, do, how do we live as artists mm-hmm. and make art in a... In a, in a way that makes any sense within those kinds of injustices and those realities that are in the world. And so that's part of what I see in your exhibition, if I can say that, hmm. is, 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 a, is because there's so much of that in the, in the, in, in, um, around Jerusalem, in yeah. that part of the world. There's so much of, of, of that happening there and, and, and so many people that have been uh, been caught up in that in so many different ways, and in fact, the, um, the, the, the one of the families that my daughter really worked with, American families that she they weren't in the same city as her, but um, um, they go through the Mennonite Central Committee actually, and they after their time in Chad, they went to Lebanon and worked in Syria, oh, wow. um, and of course, a very dangerous place to be, yeah, very dangerous place to be, and. Um, um, Chad was dangerous just because you of the 
you know, you're exposing yourself to all kinds of disease. Uh, and, and there were lots of things going on around the country, um, but not in the way that, that Syria has been, has been right. dangerous with their civil war and so forth. So I've, I, I, that's one of the reasons for my original question, even. Hmm. We as artists are trained to think in terms of all of these technical sides of things, and those are really, really critical and, and, and matter a great deal in the way we communicate, but, it, but we also, art has always talked about, um, somehow talked about uh, meaning that, that transcends that. And uh, and so I see you you striving for that and and effectively doing that in some ways. So um, that's one of the reasons for my original question. So I hope I artic- articulated that in some sense that makes makes a reality. I mentioned earlier the story um, uh, when we were talking before before recording. Uh, my composition teacher uh, somehow uh, Beethoven's Sonata Opus Thirty One Number One came up, and it's it's subtitled The Tempest sometimes <laughs> because Beethoven said if you really want to understand this this sonata. Uh, read The Tempest, read Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. And I said to my teacher, I don't understand why he said that because the piece of music doesn't make me think of The Tempest at all. They seem very different. And that's when my teacher said, it's fine to have a non-musical idea get you started, but in the end, the music takes over. (laughs) (laughs) So don't ever tell anybody what your non-musical idea was. But at the same time, we do all the time. Right. Uh, We musicians do it in a very different way. But uh, visual artists are much more, here's what this really means, kind of, you know, you right. put your artist statement on the wall right next to the work sometimes to, to explain what you were thinking. And sometimes it makes sense to me and sometimes it doesn't. Right. That's uh, such a fundamental. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't agree about these things. <laughs> yeah. And what to share, how much yes. to share. Yes. What language to uh, assign. Yeah. And it's. Yeah. And I take it seriously. I mean, I, I also take it very seriously. Well, in, in, in music, there is that tradition of everything I had to say, I said in the music. So right. go listen. You right. know? <laughs> and there have been periods, too, when I yeah. I was convinced of that. Yeah. And and yet, I think the deeper I went, I, I would say the deeper I went into the subjects uh, of, the, of the work, I felt it was important to give viewers and people who are, would take the time to look at the work, to give them some access and even... Uh, even if I'm questioning accessibility in some of the work, but to provide access for the student, I mean, for, sorry, yeah, <laughs> to provide access for the viewer, and some of the place names are, are deliberately very um, charged. Yes. And yes. Um, that's a way to, to, to also activate the, mm-hmm. um, a relationship to the subject or a relationship to potentially meaning that someone may take from it you know so right. i am open to them I mean, like i know people love to come up to a work and say i just want to i want to have my own meaning and people right. are going to do that regardless do that no matter what yeah, that's, that's right, right. <laughs> um that's happening but it's i think yeah. it's important to it to, for that interface or for that for that interaction to happen well here's what you wrote uh in in the booklet it's around the first page if the work succeeds in drawing alongside these emphases it may aid in framing a vision that is empathetic and compassionate one which prioritizes solidarity in a moment moment of increasing division. Prioritizes solidarity in a moment of increasing division. So one of the things that I have uh, written and w- is is not at all original with me <laughs> is that that's one of the things that art can do, mm. and uh, that especially. I mean, it, it happens for us as musicians in a live concert and in other forms of performing arts where you have an audience of people who are as divided as all the ways that our society is divided today. Mm. And they're sitting there loving what's what they're hearing together. <laughs> they are brought together by that. Mm. And years, years and years ago in the 90s, there was some ambassador that came to NASM. This is the accrediting body for music schools. And um, I was at the convention, and, and I just remember the first thing he said was, uh, whenever we bring different cultures together, we always have, have musicians, we always have artists, because that's how you break down the thing, the dividing walls, yes, you is. know? That's, that's the way to do that. Um, so that's, that's part of what I hear you, hear you talking about, and which you actually wrote about here. And of course, you're dealing, like you said, you had never seen that kind of hostility before. It's interesting that on the last, very last page of this booklet is Bruce Herman talking about um, being at the, um, 
being at the Holy Sepulchre, I think. The, yeah, the Holy Sepulchre, uh, where, where Christ was the, the traditional place where he was buried, and that a fight broke out between different Christian groups. Was this an actual fist fight, or uh? <laughs> it's not an uncommon <laughs> as uncommon as we'd like to maybe accept? Loving their enemies, no doubt. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I've also been been thinking as you've talked about the Beatitudes again, uh, because of course the very first two Beatitudes are poverty. Mm-hmm. Which uh, Saint you're talking about for Saint Francis? We know that Saint Francis em, uh, embraced poverty. In fact, I remember. I, I, I will always remember that we can be thankful that a writer wrote this once. Some I don't remember who or where I read this, but they said we can be grateful to Saint Francis' father for giving uh, Saint Francis the right kind of model to rebel against. Because <laughs> <laughs> his father was a worldly wealthy ma- yeah. merchant. That's right. And, <laughs> and Francis said no. <laughs> so and uh, so poverty and poverty of spirit, however we understand mm-hmm. that, and then mourn- mourning. Yes. Uh, Lamentation. Yes, yeah, and and says you're really happy. I mean, I can't think of anything less American <laughs> than to say if you want to be happy, uh, have have at least the inward disposition of a of a of a poor person, hmm. and and be grieving daily. Be grieving. Hmm. But I don't know how we can look at the world and not be grieving right. daily. And right. uh, so our role as artists is somehow to to work with that grie- grieving and, and to um, express it in a way that helps people process it. Yes, um, yes. Anyway, um, it's been just fabulous to talk with you. Uh, don't worry about the fact that you anticipated your artist talk today because this will definitely not be posted before <laughs> this afternoon. <laughs> but um, uh, it's what a, what, a, what a wonderful conversation, uh, mm. just fabulous and uh, and haven't have been enjoying your works and look forward to getting to spend more time with them over wow. the next few weeks while they're on our walls. And for those of you listening to this podcast, if you're in the area, please do come in and uh, and take a leisurely walk through our building here, through the High Center in the Kleinenhaga building, uh, and and enjoy this wonderful work that's hanging on our walls mm-hmm. for the next few weeks. So, but thank you, Matt. Well, thank you. Really, my privilege. Thank you so much. This is Richard Robertson from the Dean's Office.